Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from Otto of the Silver Hand by Howard Pyle. How Otto lived in the dragon's house. The gates of the monastery stood wide open. The world lay beyond, and all was ready for departure. Baron Conrad and his men-at-arms sat foot in stirrup. The milk-white horse that had been brought for Otto stood waiting for him beside his father's great charger. Farewell, Otto, said the good old abbot, as he stooped and kissed the boy's cheek. Farewell, answered Otto, in his simple, quiet way, and it brought a pang to the old man's heart that the child should seem to grieve so little at the leave-taking. Farewell, Otto, said the brethren that stood about. Farewell, farewell. Then poor brother John came forward and took the boy's hand and looked up into his face as he sat upon his horse. We will meet again, said he, with his strange, vacant smile, but maybe it will be in paradise, and there perhaps... They will let us lie in the father's belfry, and look down upon the angels in the courtyard below. Aye, answered Otto, with an answering smile. Forward, cried the baron in a deep voice, and with a clash of hooves and jingle of armor they were gone, and the great wooden gates were shut to behind them. Down the steep winding pathway they rode, and out into the great wide world beyond, upon which Otto and brother John had gazed so often from the wooden belfry of the white cross on the hill. "'Hast been taught to ride a horse by the priests up yonder on Michaelsburg?' asked the baron, when they had reached the level road. "'Nay,' said Otto, "'we had no horse to ride, but only to bring in the harvest or the grapes from the further vineyards to the vineyard.' "'Prut,' said the baron, "'methought the abbot would have had enough of the blood of the old days in his veins to have taught thee what is fitting for a knight to know. Art thou not afeard?' "'Nay,' said Otto, with a smile, "'I am not afeard.' There at least thou showest thyself of Vulef, said the grim baron. But perhaps Otto's thought of fear, and Baron Conrad's thought of fear, were two very different matters. The afternoon had passed by the time they had reached the end of their journey. Up the steep stony path they rode to the drawbridge and the great gaping gateway of Drachenhausen, where wall and tower and battlement looked darker and more forbidding than ever in the gray twilight of coming night. Little Otto looked up with great, wondering, awestruck eyes at this grim new home of his. The next moment they clattered over the drawbridge that spanned the narrow black gulf between the roadway and the wall, and the next were past the echoing arch of the great gateway, and in the gray gloaming of the paved courtyard within. Otto looked around upon the many faces gathered there to catch the first sight of the little baron. Hard, rugged faces, seamed and weather-beaten, very different from those of the gentle brethren among whom he had lived, and it seemed strange to him that there were none there whom he should know. As he climbed the steep stony steps to the door of the baron's house, old Ursula came running down to meet him. She flung her withered arms around him and hugged him close to her. "'My little child!' she cried, and then fell to sobbing as though her heart would break. "'Here is someone that knoweth me,' thought the little boy." His new home was all very strange and wonderful to Otto. The armors, the trophies, the flags, the long galleries with their ranges of rooms, the great hall below with its vaulted roof, 
and its great fireplace of grotesquely carved stone, and all the strange people with their lives and thoughts so different from what he had used to know. And it was a wonderful thing to explore all the strange places in the dark old castle, places where it seemed to Otto no one could ever have been before. Once he wandered down a long dark passageway below the hall, pushed open a narrow iron-bound oaken door, and found himself all at once in a strange new land. The gray light, coming in through a range of tall, narrow windows, fell upon a row of silent, motionless figures carven in stone, knights and ladies in strange armor and dress, each lying upon his or her stony couch with clasped hands, and gazing with fixed, motionless, stony eyeballs up into the gloomy, vaulted arch above them. There lay, in a cold, silent row, all of the Vulefs who had died since the ancient castle had been built. It was the chapel into which Otto had made his way, now long since fallen out of use, excepting as a burial place of the race. At another time he clambered up into the loft under the high-peaked roof, where lay numberless forgotten things covered with the dim dust of years. There a flock of pigeons had made their roost, and flapped noisily out into the sunlight when he pushed open the door from below. Here he hunted among the moldering things of the past until, oh joy of joys, in an ancient oaken chest he found a great lot of worm-eaten books that had belonged to some old chaplain of the castle in days gone by. They were not precious and beautiful volumes, such as the father abbot had showed him, but all the same they had their quaint painted pictures of the blessed saints and angels. Again, at another time, going into the courtyard, Otto had found the door of Melchior's tower standing invitingly open, for old Hilda, Schwartz Karl's wife, had come down below upon some business or other. Then upon the shaky wooden steps Otto ran without waiting for a second thought, for he had often gazed at those curious buildings hanging so far up in the air and wondered what they were like. Round and round and up and up Otto climbed, until his head spun. At last he reached a landing stage, and gazing over the edge and down, beheld the stone pavement far, far below, lit by a faint glimmer of light that entered through the arched doorway. Otto clutched tight hold of the wooden rail. He had no thought that he had climbed so far. Upon the other side of the landing was a window that pierced the thick stone walls of the tower. Out of the window he looked and then drew suddenly back again with a gasp, for it was through the outer wall he peered, and down, down below, in the dizzy depths, he saw the hard gray rocks where the black swine, looking no larger than ants in the distance, fed upon the refuse thrown out over the walls of the castle. There lay the moving treetops like a billowy green sea, and the coarse thatched roofs of the peasant cottages, round which crawled the little children like tiny human specks. Then Otto turned and crept down the stairs, frightened at the height to which he had climbed. At the doorway he met Mother Hilda. "'Bless us!' she cried, starting back and crossing herself, and then, seeing who it was, ducked him a courtesy, with as a pleasant smile as her forbidding face, with its little deep-set eyes, was able to put upon itself. Old Ursula seemed nearer to the boy than anyone else about the castle, excepting it was his father— and it was a newfound delight to Otto to sit beside her and listen to her quaint stories, so different from the monkish tales he had heard and read at the monastery. But one day it was a tale of a different sort, she told him, and one that opened his eyes to what he had never dreamed of before. 
The mellow sunlight fell through the window upon old Ursula as she sat in the warmth with her distaff in her hands, while Otto lay close to her feet upon a bearskin, silently thinking over the strange story of a brave knight and a fiery dragon that she had just told him. Suddenly Ursula broke the silence. "'Little one,' said she, "'thou art wondrously like thy own dear mother. Didst ever hear how she died?' "'Nay,' said Otto, "'but tell me, Ursula, how it was.' "'Tis strange,' said the old woman, "'that no one should have told thee in all this time.' And then, in her own fashion, she related to him the story of how his father had set forth upon that expedition, in spite of all that Otto's mother had said, beseeching him to abide at home, how he had been foully wounded, and how the poor lady had died from her fright and grief. Otto listened with eyes that grew wider and wider, though not all with wonder. He no longer lay upon the bearskin, but sat up with his hands clasped. For a moment or two, after the old woman had finished her story, he sat staring silently at her. Then he cried out in a sharp voice, "'And is this true that you tell me, Ursula? And did my father seek to rob the townspeople of their goods?' Old Ursula laughed. "'Aye,' said she. "'That he did, and many times. Ah, me! Those days are all gone now.' And she fetched a deep sigh. "'Then we lived in plenty.' and had both silks and linens and velvets besides in the store closets, and were able to buy good wines and live in plenty among the best. Now we dress and freeze and live upon what we can get, and sometimes that is little enough, with nothing better than sour beer to drink. But there is one comfort in it all, and that is our good baron paid back the score he owed the Trutstruction people, not only for that, but for all that they had done from the very first. Thereupon she went on to tell Otto how Baron Conrad had fulfilled the pledge of revenge that he had made Abbot Otto, how he had watched day after day until one time he had caught the true Strachan folk with Baron Frederick at their head in a narrow defile back of the Kaiserberg, of the fierce fight that was there fought, how the Roderbergs at last fled, leaving Baron Frederick behind them wounded, and how he had kneeled before the Baron Conrad asking for mercy and of how Baron Conrad had answered, Aye, thou shalt have mercy as thou disturbest, and had therewith raised his great two-handed sword and laid his kneeling enemy dead at one blow. Poor little Otto had never dreamed that such cruelty and wickedness could be. He listened to the old woman's story with gaping horror, and when the last came, and she told him with a smack of her lips how his father had killed his enemy with his own hand, he gave a gasping cry and sprang to his feet, just then the door at the other end of the chamber was noisily opened, and Baron Conrad himself strode into the room. Otto turned his head, and seeing who it was, gave another cry, loud and quavering, and ran to his father and caught him by the hand. "'Oh, father,' he cried, "'oh, father, is it true that thou hast killed a man with thy own hand?' "'Aye,' said the Baron grimly, "'it is true enough, and I think me I have killed many more than one. But what of that, Otto?' Thou must get out of these foolish notions that the old monks have taught thee. Here in the world it is different from what it is at St. Michaelsburg. Here a man must either slay or be slain. But poor little Otto, with his face hidden in his father's robe, cried as though his heart would break. Oh, father, he said again and again, it cannot be. It cannot be that thou who art so kind to me should have killed a man with thine own hands. Then... I wish that I were back in the monastery again. 
I am afraid out here in the great wide world. Perhaps somebody may kill me, for I am only a weak little boy and could not save my own life if they chose to take it from me. Baron Conrad looked down upon Otto all this while, drawing his bushy eyebrows together. Once he reached out his hand as though to stroke the boy's hair, but drew it back again. Turning angrily upon the old woman, Ursula, said he, thou must tell the child no more such stories as this. He knoweth not at all of such things as yet. Keep thy tongue busy with the old woman's tales that he loves to hear thee tell, and leave it with me to teach him what becomes a true knight and a vuluf. That night the father and son sat together by the roaring fire in the great hall. Tell me, Otto, said the baron, dost thou hate me for having done what Ursula told thee today that I did? Otto looked for a while into his father's face. I know not, said he at last, in his quaint, quiet voice, but methinks I do not hate thee for it. The baron drew his bushy brows together until his eyes twinkled out of the depths beneath them. Then of a sudden he broke into a great loud laugh, smiting his horny palm with a smack upon his thigh. The Red Cock Crows on Drachenhausen There was a new emperor in Germany who had come from far away Swiss castle, Count Rudolf of Habsburg, a good honest man with a good honest comely face, but bringing with him a stern sense of justice and of right, and a determination to put down the lawlessness of the savage German barons among whom he had come as emperor. One day two strangers came galloping up the winding path to the gates of the dragon's house. A horn sounded thin and clear. A parley was held across the chasm in the road between the two strangers and the porter who appeared at the little wicket. Then a messenger was sent running to the baron, who presently came striding across the open courtyard to the gateway to parley with the strangers. The two bore with them a folded parchment with a great red seal hanging from it like a clot of blood. It was a message from the emperor, demanding that the baron should come to the imperial court to answer certain charges that had been brought against him, and to give his bond to maintain the peace of the empire. One by one those barons, who had been carrying on their private wars, or had been despoiling the burgher folk in their traffic from town to town, and against whom complaint had been lodged, were summoned to the imperial court, where they were compelled to promise peace and to swear allegiance to the new order of things. All those who came willingly were allowed to return home again, after giving security for maintaining the peace. All those who came not willingly were either brought in chains or rooted out of their strongholds with fire and sword, and their roofs burned over their heads. Now it was Baron Conrad's turn to be summoned to the imperial court, for complaint had been lodged against him by his old enemy of Trutzdrachen, Baron Henry, the nephew of the old Baron Frederick who had been slain while kneeling in the dust of the road back of the Kaiserberg. No one at Drachenhausen could read but Master Rudolph the steward, who was sand blind, and little Otto. So the boy read the summons to his father, while the grim Baron sat silent with his chin resting upon his clenched fist and his eyebrows drawn together into a thoughtful frown as he gazed into the pale face of his son, who sat by the rude oaken table with the great parchment spread out before him. Should he answer the summons, or scorn it as he would have done under the old emperors? Baron Conrad knew not which to do. Pride said one thing, and policy another. The emperor was a man with an iron hand, and Baron Conrad knew what had happened to those who had refused to obey the imperial commands. 
So at last he decided he would go to the court, taking with him a suitable escort to support his dignity. It was with nearly a hundred armed men clattering behind him that Baron Conrad rode away to court to answer the imperial summons. The castle was stripped of its fighting men, and only eight remained behind to guard the great stone fortress and the simple-witted boy. It was a sad mistake. Three days had passed since the Baron had left the castle, and now the third night had come. The moon was hanging midway in the sky, white and full, for it was barely past midnight. The high, precipitous banks of the rocky road threw a dense black shadow into the gully below, and in that crooked inky line that scarred the white face of the moonlit rocks, a band of some thirty men were creeping slowly and stealthily nearer and nearer to Castle Drachenhausen. At the head of them was a tall, slender knight clad in light chain armor, his head covered only by a steel cap or basconet. Along the shadow they crept, with only now and then a faint clink or jingle of armor to break the stillness. For most of those who followed the armed knight were clad in a leathern jerkins, only one or two wearing even so much as a steel breastplate by way of armor. So at last they reached the chasm that yawned beneath the roadway, and there they stopped, for they had reached the spot toward which they had been journeying. It was Baron Henry of Trutstraten, who had come thus in the silence of the night-time to the dragon's house, and his visit boded no good to those within. The Baron and two or three of his men talked together in low tones, now and then looking up at the sheer wall that towered above them. "'Yonder is the place, Lord Baron,' said one of those who stood with him. "'I have scanned every foot of the wall at night for a week past. "'And we not get in by that way. "'We get not in at all. "'A keen eye, a true aim, and a bold man are all we need, "'and the business is done.' "'Here again all looked upward at the gray wall above them, "'rising up in the silent night air.' High aloft hung the wooden Bartzan, or watchtower, clinging to the face of the outer wall and looming black against the pale sky above. Three great beams pierced the wall, and upon them the wooden tower rested. The middle beam jutted out just beyond the rest to a distance of five or six feet, and to the end of it was carved into the rude semblance of a dragon's head. So, good, said the baron at last, then let us see if thy plan holds, and if Hans Schmidt's aim is true enough to earn the three marks I have promised him. Where's the bag? One of those who stood near handed the baron a leathern pouch. The baron opened it and drew out a ball of fine thread, another of twine, a coil of stout rope, and a great bundle that looked, until it was unrolled, like a coarse fishnet. It was a rope ladder. While these were being made ready, Hans Schmidt, a thick-set, low-browed, broad-shouldered archer, strung his stout bow, and carefully choosing three arrows from those in his quiver, he stuck them point downward in the earth. Unwinding the ball of thread, he laid it loosely in large loops upon the ground, so it might run easily without hitching. Then he tied the end of the thread tightly around one of his arrows. He fitted the arrow to the bow and drew the feather to his ear. Twang! rang the bowstring, and the feathered messenger flew whistling upon its errand to the watchtower. The very first shaft did the work. Good, said Hans Schmidt, the archer, in his heavy voice. The three warks are mine, Lord Baron. The arrow had fallen over and across the jutting beam between the carved dragon's head and the bartizan, carrying with it the thread, which now hung from above, glimmering white in the moonlight like a cobweb. 
the rest was easy enough. First the twine was drawn up to and over the beam by the thread, then the rope was drawn up by the twine, and last of all the rope ladder by the rope. There it hung like a thin, slender black line against the silent gray walls. And now, said the baron, who will go first and win fifty marks for his own and climb the rope ladder to the tower yonder? Those around hesitated. Is there none brave enough to venture, said the baron, after a pause of silence? A stout young fellow, of about eighteen years of age, stepped forward and flung his flat earthen cap upon the ground. I will go, my lord baron, said he. Good, said the baron, the fifty marks are thine. And now listen. If thou findest no one in the watchtower, whistle thus. If the watchman be at his post, see that thou makest all safe before thou giftest the signal. When all is ready, the others will follow thee. And now go, and good luck go with thee. The young fellow spat upon his hands, and seizing the ropes, began slowly and carefully to mount the flimsy shaking ladder. Those below held it as tight as they were able, but nevertheless he swung backward and forward and round and round as he climbed steadily upward. Once he stopped upon the way, and those below saw him clutch the ladder close to him, as though dizzied by the height and the motion. But he soon began again, up, 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 like some great black spider. Presently he came out from the black shadow below and into the white moonlight, and then his shadow followed him step by step up the gray wall upon his way. At last he reached the jutting beam, and there again he stopped for a moment clutching tightly to it. The next he was upon the beam, dragging himself toward the window of the bartizan just above. Slowly raising himself upon his narrow foothold, he peeped cautiously within. Those watching him from below saw him slip his hand softly to his side, and then place something between his teeth. It was his dagger. Reaching up, he clutched the window sill above him, and, with a silent spring, seated himself upon it. The next moment he disappeared within. A few seconds of silence followed. Then, of a sudden, a sharp, gurgling cry broke the stillness. There was another pause of silence. Then a faint, shrill whistle sounded from above. "'Who will go next?' said the baron. It was Hans Schmidt who stepped forward. Another followed the archer up the ladder and another, and another. Last of all went the Baron Henry himself, and nothing was left but the rope ladder hanging from above, and swaying back and forth in the wind. That night Schwartz Karl had been bousing it over a pot of yellow wine in the pantry with his old crony master Rudolph the steward, and the two, chatting and gossiping together, had passed the time away until long after the rest of the castle had been wrapped in sleep. Then, perhaps a little unsteady upon his feet, Schwartz Karl betook himself homeward to the Melchior Tower. He stood for a while in the shadow of the doorway, gazing up into the pale sky above him at the great bright round moon that hung like a bubble among the sharp peaks of the roofs standing black as ink against the sky. But all of a sudden he started up from the post against which he had been leaning, and with head bent to one side stood listening breathlessly for he too had heard that smothered cry from the watchtower. So he stood intently, motionlessly, listening, listening, but all was silent except for the monotonous dripping of water in one of the nooks of the courtyard, and the distant murmur of the river borne upon the breath of the night air. Mayhap I was mistaken, muttered Schwartz Karl to himself, but the next moment the silence was broken again by a faint shrill whistle. 
What did it mean? Back of the heavy oaken door of the tower was Schwartz Carl's crossbow, the portable windlass with which the bowstring was drawn back, and a pouch of bolts. Schwartz Carl reached back into the darkness, fumbling in the gloom until his fingers met the weapon. Setting his foot in the iron stirrup at the end of the stock, he wound the stout bowstring into the notch of the trigger and carefully fitted the heavy, murderous-looking bolt into the groove. Minute after minute passed, and Schwartz Carl, holding his air blast in his hand, stood silently waiting and watching in the sharp-cut black shadow of the doorway, motionless as a stone statue. Minute after minute passed. Suddenly there was a movement in the shadow of the arch of the great gateway across the courtyard, and the next moment a leathern-clad figure crept noiselessly out upon the moonlit pavement and stood there listening, his head bent to one side. Schwartz Karl knew very well it was no one belonging to the castle, and from the nature of his action he was upon no good errand. He did not stop to challenge the suspicious stranger. The taking of another's life was thought too small a matter for much thought or care in those days. Schwartz Karl would have shot a man for a much smaller reason than the suspicious actions of this fellow. The leather-clad figure stood a fine target in the moonlight for a crossbow bolt. Schwartz Karl slowly raised the weapon to his shoulder and took a long and steady aim. Just then, the stranger put his fingers to his lips and gave a low, shrill whistle. It was the last whistle he was to give upon this earth. There was a sharp, jarring twang of the bowstring, the hiss of a flying bolt, and the dull thud as it struck its mark. The man gave a shrill, quavering cry and went staggering back, and then fell all of a heap against the wall behind him. As though in answer to the cry, half a dozen men rushed tumultuously out from the shadow of the gateway whence the stranger had just come, and then stood in the courtyard, looking uncertainly this way and that, not knowing from what quarter the stroke had come that laid their comrade low. But Schwartz Karl did not give them time to discover that. There was no chance to spring his cumbersome weapon again. Down he flung it upon the ground. To arms, he roared in a voice of thunder, and then clapped to the door of Melchior's tower and shot the great iron bolts with a clang and rattle. The next instant the Trutstrachen men were thundering at the door, but Schwartz Karl was already far up the winding steps. But now the others came pouring out from the gateway. To the house, roared Baron Henry. Then suddenly a clashing, clanging uproar crashed out upon the night. Dong, dong! It was the great alarm bell from Melchior's tower. Schwartz Karl was at his post. Little Baron Otto lay sleeping upon the great rough bed in his room dreaming of the white cross upon the hill, and Brother John. By and by he heard the convent bell ringing, and knew there must be visitors at the gate, for loud voices sounded through his dream. Presently he knew he was coming awake, but though the sunny monastery garden grew dimmer and dimmer to his sleeping sight, the, the clanging of the bell and the sound of the shouts grew louder and louder. Then he opened his eyes. Flaming red lights from torches, carried hither and thither by people in the courtyard outside, flashed and ran along the wall of his room. Hoarse shouts and cries filled the air, and suddenly the shrill, piercing shriek of a woman rang from wall to wall, and through the noises the great bell from far above Melchior's tower clashed and clanged its harsh, resonant alarm. Otto sprang from his bed and looked out the window and down upon the courtyard below. "'Dear God, what dreadful thing hath happened!' he cried, and clasped his hands together. 
A cloud of smoke was pouring out from the windows of the building across the courtyard, whence a dull ruddy glow flashed and flickered. Strange men were running here and there with flaming torches, and the now continuous shrieking of women pierced the air. Just beneath the window lay the figure of a man half naked and face downward upon the stones. Then suddenly Otto cried out in fear and horror, for, as he looked with dazed and bewildered eyes down into the lurid courtyard beneath, a savage man in a shining breastplate and steel cap came dragging the dark, silent figure of a woman across the stones. But whether she was dead or in a swoon, Otto could not tell. And every moment the pulsing of that dull red glare from the windows of the building across the courtyard shone more brightly, and the glare from other flaming buildings, which Otto could not see from his window, turned the black starry sky into the lurid day. Just then the door of the room was burst open, and in rushed poor old Ursula, crazy with her terror. She flung herself down upon the floor and caught Otto around the knees. Save me, she cried, save me, as though the poor pale child could be of any help to her at such a time. In the passageway, without, shone the light of torches and the sound of loud footsteps that came nearer and nearer. And still, through all the din, sounded continually the clash and clang and clamor of the great alarm bell. The red light flashed into the room, and in the doorway stood a tall, thin figure clad from head to foot in glittering chain armor. From behind this fierce knight, with his dark, narrow, cruel face, its deep-set eyes glistening in the light of the torches, crowded six or eight savage, low-browed, brutal men who stared into the room and at the white-faced boy as he stood by the window, with the old woman clinging to his knees and praying to him for help. "'We have cracked the nut, and here is the colonel,' said one of them who stood behind the rest, and thereupon a roar of brutal laughter went up. But the cruel face of the armed knight never relaxed into a smile. He strode into the room and laid his iron hand heavily upon the boy's shoulder. "'Art thou the young Baron Otto?' said he in a harsh voice. "'Aye,' said the lad, "'but do not kill me.' The knight did not answer him. "'Fetch the cord hither,' said he, "'and drag the old witch away.' It took two of them to loosen poor old Ursula's crazy clutch from about her young master. Then, amid roars of laughter, they dragged her away, screaming and scratching and striking with her fists. They drew back Otto's arms behind his back and wrapped them round and round with a bowstring. Then they pushed and hustled and thrust him forth from the room and along the passageway, now bright with the flames that roared and crackled without. Down the steep stairway they drove him, where thrice he stumbled and fell amid roars of laughter. At last they were out into the open air of the courtyard. Here was a terrible sight, but Otto saw nothing of it. His blue eyes were gazing far away, and his lips moved softly with the prayers that the good monks of St. Michaelsburg had taught him, for he thought they meant to slay him. All around the courtyard the flames roared and snapped and crackled. Four or five figures lay scattered here and there, silent in all the glare and uproar. The heat was so intense that they were soon forced back into the shelter of the great gateway, where the women captives, under the guard or three or four of the Trutzdrachen men, were crowded together in dumb, bewildered terror. Only one man was to be seen among the captives, poor old half-blind Master Rudolph the steward, who crouched tremblingly among the women. They had set the blaze to Melchior's tower, and now below it was a seething furnace. Above the smoke rolled in black clouds from the windows, 
but still the alarm bell sounded through all the blaze and smoke. Higher and higher the flames rose. A trickle of fire ran along the frame buildings hanging aloft in the air. A clear flame burst out at the peak of the roof, but still the bell rang forth its clamorous clangor. Presently those who watched below saw the cluster of buildings bend and sink and sway. There was a crash and a roar, and a cloud of sparks flew up as though to the very heavens themselves, and the bell of Melchior's tower was stilled forever. A great shout arose from the watching upturned faces. "'Forward!' cried Baron Henry, and out from the gateway they swept, and across the drawbridge, leaving Drachenhausen behind them a flaming furnace blazing against the grey of the early dawning." Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Stay connected by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash enchanted library. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash enchanted library. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends. Happy reading.